0: Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm, and I am joined today by TechCrunch early stage and venture capital reporter and all-around excellent human, Natasha Moscarenes. Natasha, hello.
1: Hello. How are you, Alex, Mr. Birthday?
0: Yes, 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 yes. yes. We're recording this on Thursday, and it is my birthday. I am 32. Yay! Which well, yay! <laughs> really, that's that's what I get. Um,
1: yes, you survived another year. That is always worth celebrating.
0: Yeah, the last year was mostly was entirely pandemic, and so yeah. it was not quite what I had in mind. But uh, yes, I am alive. I am I am kicking and so forth. And we are here to talk about the week because even though it is my birthday week, tech didn't give a shit, and there's lots to do. As so it rarely
1: does. As it really does
0: all right so what is on the show today well a great host of things we are going to talk about the european market we're going to talk about some nft stuff because there's quite a lot going on in the crypto world that has caught our eye the duolingo ipo has updates so we got to talk about edtech then we have notes on hot rounds from mural and bolt two companies that are growing very quickly and are now multi-unicorns finally ladies and gentlemen at the very very end We're gonna note that Clubhouse has come out of beta. All right, uh, Natasha, the European market, I feel like I've been repeating myself a little bit, but everywhere in the world is incredibly active and the European market is no exception from that rule. Can I give you a couple of numbers? 100%, run us through it. All right, so pulling from some data from Deal Room, which is like a European crunch base, if you will, some 49 billion euros were raised by European startups in the first half of 2021. Now that number in the abstract, not super useful, But it's 2.9 times as much as was raised in the first half of last year. So essentially a tripling uh, in a single year. And the other kind of major news item out from the European startup scene was that WISE, previously transfer-wise, went public on the London Stock Exchange in a direct listing and is now valued at around $11 billion. So, Natasha, first impressions on the European Venture capital startup, boom.
1: So I think the most interesting thing about all these numbers is the context and how it contrasts with China. So in the EC story you had up about this, you guys mentioned how Europe had created 15% of new global unicorns since 2020, 20% of new Series A stage startups and 35% of stage stage tech startups. I'll be honest. I was like, of course it did. Of course, there's more seed stage than a little bit less series A and then the fewest unicorns. But then you look at China and it's kind of the opposite trend. And so China has about 8% of new unicorns, 6% of series A stage startups, and just 3% of the world's seed stage tech startups. And so I feel like that's what you need to know about Europe right now is that It's at a completely different stage than China. I'm
0: pretty bullish on these numbers for Europe because if you have such an enormous chunk of the seed stage market, it implies that you're building up quite a lot of later supply for future unicorns or future unicorns. I probably (laughs) just made that up. But the cool thing is it bodes well for Europe's next five years. And on the flip side, China famous for building a great bevy of world-dominating tech companies, or at least world-leading, but certainly it seems to be more of a mature market than a startup space, if that makes sense. And I wonder what that's going to do to the kind of broader Chinese tech ecosystem moving along, but certainly it's fun to track these numbers as they come out. And speaking of enormous deals, big dollar amounts, and who needs them? Did you see this this FTX deal from this week? This was this was the head scratcher for me of the last couple of days.
1: I did. So it's the largest ever VC round for a crypto company. FTX is a crypto exchange. I would say it's in a competitive landscape with Coinbase. Is that fair?
0: Yeah, I, I would say a different geographic focus, but yes. probably the same category. Yeah.
1: Okay, cool. So if you don't know FTX, think of Coinbase as general competitors. They raised $900 million in a Series B funding. At an $18 billion valuation, and they're based in Hong Kong, Alex, like you mentioned, they've originally and since inception been focused on international crypto trading, where the laws may be a little bit more lax compared well, to the U.S. Well,
0: th- that's the question that I had about this. So, one, it's a $900 million Series B, which is hilarious by itself. An $18 billion valuation, $900 million round. I mean, they sold a, a small chunk of the company for this enormous amount of cash. And just for fun, 60 investors took part. So we saw Paradigm, Sequoia, Ribbit, Third Point, mm. Lightspeed, Coinbase Ventures, SoftBank, Sino Global Capital, Multicoin Capital, and then also some hedge funders, including Izzy Englander, which is my new favorite name on the planet. <laughs> so here's the thing about FTX. There's some good reasons why it raised a bunch of money, and right. that is essentially rising volume. And the company is now kind of doing around 10 billion a day in daily trading volume. I pulled some third-party data to look more into this to kind of fact-check that and essentially it has seen massive growth in the last kind of 12 months. And so investors are looking at this company and saying, "Look, it's driving tons more volume. Trading platforms make money from volume as we learned from Coinbase and Robinhood, etc." And so, you know, its revenue is up tenfold this year and that is why it's worth so much money. 18 billion feels aggressive to me anyways, Natasha, but I mean, I guess we can kind of understand the the foundation of the concept of why the deal happened.
1: Okay, that's a good way to look at it. Two things that I wanted your thoughts on. One is the fact that they were founded in 2019, question mark. That blows my mind. Absolutely crazy.
0: Launched in 2019, Actually sh- Launched. I say.
1: Okay, the second is FTX.us. Why? So
0: there's a lot of complexity around how different trading platforms in the crypto space can onboard customers. And so, for example, Binance is in bits of trouble around the world for, I don't know, a lack of regulatory rigor. You might say it's a polite way of saying that. And FTX Hong Kong based has reach around the world because it's a digital company, but it has to deal with different regulatory environments. And that's kind of the key question that we have about the company moving forward because China, the country, has been cracking down on crypto mining and crypto activities in the last couple of months, not in the way that many Bitcoin fans would kind of just shout, oh, it's FUD, whatever, whatever. Like, really, the mining has concluded in the country and has moved to other places. So it's been a relatively serious shift, Tosh. And my question is, as we watch Hong Kong's, I don't know, regulatory environment to be polite and political system get subsumed into how the CCP manages mainland China, how much room is there for FTX to stay domiciled in Hong Kong? Right. I mean, I'm shocked given the geopolitical uncertainty that there's this much capital flowing in at this price point. There must be something that I'm missing or at least or optimism that this is going to work out long term. But it's a strange moment for this amount of money to go into this particular company.
1: Yeah, I think two weeks ago, Danny and you were chatting about how it may be a changing moment for Chinese companies that want to list in the U.S. or want to list in general. And I feel like this company with so much capital, this flashy valuation, of course, it kind of has to start answering those questions, even if it's not going to pursue one just yet until it's valued at 33 billion That's your consequence when you raise this much this early is you have to start thinking about the public markets.
0: And then if they stay Hong Kong domiciled to our kind of current understanding, Mm -hmm. where do they go public is your point. It's it's very astute. It's not going to be in the U.S. probably given, you know, data concerns and how the Chinese government's approaching international listings. It probably won't be in China either. And that leaves no place, according to our current understanding. So question marks here. But Let's move on and talk about the ocean and especially the open seas. Where you can pilot a boat, or you can buy an NFT, and that rhymed, so I get five points for that transition. <laughs> Natasha, NFT market OpenSea now worth one and a half billion, raised a one hundred million dollars Series B, so a baby, a little baby Series B, compared yeah. to what FTX pulled <laughs> off. Andreessen led it, also co okay. to CAA, Michael Ovitz, Kevin Hart's Kevin Durant, and Ashton Kutcher. So a mix of professional investors and professional famous people, we could say. How familiar are you with OpenSea? Like, like no, no BS, no prep for the show. Like, how much does this come up in your life?
1: I think it only came up when NFTs were really popping off maybe, what, two months ago, three months ago. And this was one of the names of marketplaces. That is it. And so when I saw Got them to kind of come back with this raise, I was like, oh, OK, I guess the state of NFTs isn't non-existent. <laughs> it's, it's fully a thing still. And I'm not mad about that. It's just something that I think honestly has lost my attention since the initial hype around it. What about you?
0: Yeah, but pretty much the same. I mean, I feel like NFTs became inescapable earlier this year because of the sheer volume that we were seeing. NBA Top Shot yeah. was incredibly active. The dollar amounts were impressive, and also NFTs for folks like myself were relatively new. I mean, this idea of buying proof of ownership of a particular asset on a particular blockchain to me felt very niche and not super utility focused. But people have been betting on them and buying them, and 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 my Twitter feed is a mix of crypto punks and bored apes, and so I see this all the time. OpenSea is a marketplace that wants to build kind of like the de facto NFT marketplace, if you will. And it has now raised a ton of money to build this. So there's quite a lot of investment in this space. And critically, Natasha saw 160 million in sales last month. So quite a lot of volume.
1: And on track for hire this month per the story. And so that was also impressive. I wasn't surprised to see Andreessen Horowitz back this company or lead the round. More importantly, I believe Andreessen launched the biggest cryptocurrency focused venture capital fund like last month.
0: It was recent. don't even yeah. know who
1: made it to the show because it's like probably that's true. <laughs> but yeah, no, it feels like a continuing bet. And I think for for listeners of the show, we talked about NFT a while ago as this may be like the the appetizer that gets the general community understanding and excited about crypto. And so it is a signal to see a marketplace raise this much money because it could lead to an overall broader, maybe comprehension of NFTs.
0: Yeah, I know, NFTs and cryptos more broadly. I mean, like if this stuff brings in more external folks, it could drive quite a lot of interest in in the space. I mean, I think NBA Top Shot did a good job of that. We're going to scoot on though to EdTech to leave the crypto world behind. Um, So we're going into a space we know better, essentially is what I'm saying. And uh, Natasha, uh, big news from Duolingo this week.
1: Yes, Duolingo priced. I was so excited to wake up to this news literally now that I'm on PST. So they set an initial price range for their IPO. They expect to price at 85 to 95 per share, which could make them be valued anywhere between $3.7 billion to $4.2 billion. What were your first impressions?
0: It's an up valuation from their last private round, if my memory serves. And yes. the price range is pretty interesting. They're going to sell 3.7 million shares Essentially, their gross raise could be about four hundred and twenty-four million, and then including some kind of secondary sales and so forth, it could be like five hundred and sixty million. So my impression was that it's a it's a big darn IPO. They're raising a ton of capital, and you know if you think about their their preceding valuations, they raised like a you know a forty-five million dollars Series D in twenty fifteen and a thirty-five million dollars Series H in November of twenty twenty. And so this this funding round, essentially this IPO, is going to be by far its biggest infusion of cash, and so. I, I'm optimistic about the company having more money to do more more stuff. Do you think there's enough room for Duolingo to, to build so much stuff that it needs that much money?
1: I think they have so much room to grow when it comes to actually teaching someone how to speak a language fluently. It's something that they admit themselves often that they can't do fully. Right now, their biggest product is motivation, and I would love to see it turn into comprehension down the road. In the S1, they mention M&A is a big focus of the future. And yep. so I would love to see a consumer-focused ed tech startup like them enter the public markets, actually have capital to do some damage. Because right now, they have always been a darling of the scene. But this kind of capital, to your point, Alex, will be their biggest yet and could totally change the game for how they operate.
0: Some Some stuff about this, about their growth, because you and I, well, you've been covering EdTech, you know, uh, with tenacity in the last year. I have been and occasionally- you've been covering
1: software, and I think that's a big contrast.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, what's funny is that there seems to be an increasing hybridization. Like, I feel like we talk about EdTech now, and it fits into the broader software world. But one theme that you've been hitting on a lot has been the growth of EdTech companies in the last year. And we're, we, we've seen that, and we're starting to now see the post-pandemic results. So if you look at Duolingo's Q1 they grew at 97% compared to Q1 of 2020. So essentially they, they doubled in size from Q1 to Q1. And, and that's great. That's what you want to see. I mean, that's the kind of growth that startups love, let alone you know, companies going public. But the midpoint of its Q2 growth expectations is around 45%. A very strong number. Nothing sure. to, I'm not going to diss that for a company doing you know several hundred million dollars in revenue <laughs> a year. Great. But certainly not the same rapid, Not as rapid, I should say, growth rate about half. I wonder how that's going to impact, you know, investor optimism about ed tech more generally, because forty five percent is not nearly as good as one hundred percent.
1: Yeah, I mean, you brought this up where it's like consumer revenue has always been obviously more volatile than selling to an enterprise with buttons and (laughs) documents, and so is that what an
0: enterprise (laughs) is? Is It's just a series of buttons and documents. That's that's not wrong.
1: They have steel doors, but inside the steel doors, there's mahogany only furniture. Absolutely no steel furniture. (laughs) So historically, the edtech public markets have looked very enterprise-y. So we know how investors feel about enterprise edtech. And right now, it's not that great. Like a lot of the edtech public stocks are down compared to their highs in the pandemic, which maybe it's expected, but whatever, separate debate. I think seeing how the public markets react to all of the consumer edtech unicorns is like my expect- next big question for the sector, and Duolingo yes. will be the first to
0: list. And so, it's a really fair point. So, if you go back in time, that Series H we mentioned earlier from November of last year valued Duolingo, a consumer-focused edtech company, at 2.4 billion, and at 3.7 to 4.2 billion, it's kind of current IPO price range estimates. It's a pretty dramatic upround, if you will, in, mm-hmm. in kind of like classic venture terms. And so to me, that does bode generally well for consumer facing ed tech startups that are trying to prove to investors that there's strong exit multiples out there. What we're doing is kind of watching this as a heat check, as you said. Like, you know, if it prices strongly, which I would say is anywhere in its IPO range, especially if it prices above. And if it has a reasonable first day, I think that could allay possible concerns about the broader ed tech consumer space, which is good for, I mean, eighty-eight billion startups based on your yeah, reporting.
1: Right. And we're already seeing the trickle effect end up in EdTech branding. So this week, moving on to our funding round section. This week, we saw Solo Learn raise $24 million for its bite-sized Duolingo-like coding education app. The Duolingo-like aspect of this startup, which is obviously indicating that they think that that's a good angle to go through, is that they're focusing on bite-sized engagements where they don't ask too much of the end learner, but try and deliver value at the same time. Of course, unlike Duolingo... They're not trying to teach languages. They're trying to teach coding education. And it has a ton of users to date. Walk us through the numbers.
0: 21 million users across 25 different curriculum categories, which is a bit of a tongue twister. It's adding between 200 and 300,000 new users every month. Active users are up 300% over the last year. I love this. One of the worst parts of, of being a, a teen for me, um, well, that's too much. One thing I encountered while I was a youth. There you go. Water it down. Water it down. (laughs) Yeah, just let's dilute that claim quite a lot. Um, When I was learning how to code back in high school, I went to Borders, the bookstore, the physical. I drove myself or my mom drove me. I forget which. I went to Borders, a bookstore. I walked through the physical space. I found the computer programming section, which was all 900 page tomes, things like, you know, the C-sharp Bible And I bought a big C++ book and I took it home and I opened it to the first page and I downloaded (laughs) an IDE and I started to try to do things. And I learned a little bit. I made some text-based games that were pretty crappy and crashed a lot and had some compiling errors. But like really, it was me in a book. And now you can learn how to code, not just with all these great online tools, but also in, in a Duolingo style format. I mean, my gosh, I would love to be like, Okay. I wouldn't love to be like 16 right now because that'd be terrible because being a teenager is awful. But like if I was a, a youth right now, the amount of tools that I have in my disposal is so amazing. And you know, so we'll learn with 24 million more now. Yeah. I mean, my gosh, it's, it's well capitalized and Drive Capital is a great firm. But Natasha, this is not the only kind of like bite-sized content company that is doing yeah. well. We also have Numerade.
1: yeah so numerate was just valued at 100 million they had raised 26 million and their whole bet is trying to bring a tiktok like algorithm to learning stem videos so imagine if you open up your phone and i guess you don't scroll through stem videos for fun but if you have a question it gives you answers in the format that's best for your learning style and comprehension
0: I wish we had Danny here because I'm pretty sure Danny does scroll through STEM videos for fun. He definitely fun. does. Definitely That's what does. he's doing
1: right now, actually. That's the Something Project.
0: <laughs> we don't, we got to keep his secrets. We've promised. We've promised. Danny has something cool coming out eventually that you will all see and we will talk yes. about it. Yeah. But $26 million round, $100 million valuation, IDG Capital, General Catalyst, Mucker Capital, Kapoor Capital, and th- a new one to me, Interplay Ventures. I don't think I know them.
1: They've been a little active in, I think, the gaming ed tech space, which is interesting. The only note I have on Numerade, and also, honestly, the aforementioned Sololearn is like philosophically really agree with these companies. Strategically, it's going to be hard to get people. I think with Duolingo, it's like you're getting people to do something that's honestly not too hard to do. It's like three minutes a day. Both of these companies are going to have to find a way to actually make it fun to learn and not just have students come to them during times of need. So I would love to see both of them figure that out. But let's move on to New Campus which yeah. is focused on Southeast Asia's tech giants, but more importantly, the first-time managers within them.
0: Yeah, so New Campus, one word, capital C, has raised a $2.5 million seed round. And I know it's strange to go from, you know, nearly billion-dollar Series Bs to nearly $100 million Series Bs to $2.5 million seed rounds, but we try to pay attention to companies of all sizes and valuations. In this case, New Campus raised money from Juvo Ventures. Maya Sharpley was the lead there. Some other investors, just to throw some of these out, M-Venture Partners. And 27V, if you want some other names in there. So this is an online platform, but it does live learning. So I presume we're doing some kind of video-ish work here. And Natasha, the idea here is to help people build effectively soft skills in the management space versus harder topics like, I don't know, Accounting 102 or whatever.
1: So Faye Yao, who's the co-founder and CEO of the company, basically described how in Southeast Asia, the importance of cross cultural communication is as much of a focus and having a moment there compared oh. to the DE&I movement in the United States. and I think that really contextualized it for me in terms of how much pressure there is for organizations to be better and making sure the person in Singapore can talk to the person in Indonesia who can talk to the person in somewhere within India. So that's kind of the startup's whole goal is like soft skills with a specific focus on helping you communicate things across multiple time zones and cultures, which we all know is the reality of our world right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. But the India point is really interesting because when I first saw this, I'm like, oh, great. It's going to be targeting the Indian market because yeah. India is enormous geographically and it has so many different cultures and languages and religious groups and so forth. But no, it's not. It's actually targeting everywhere
1: <laughs> but India. Yeah. And I kind of wish I pressed them more on this candidly. Uh, they, they said that they chose to not pursue India because it's too crowded right now too much noise instead they're trying to find the companies that are about to become unicorns and go there and maybe expand into india eventually i can't imagine how you do this without talking to india because even if you're helping singapore and indonesia their team is definitely in india too (laughs) so i don't know where where that's a good point i don't know what what they're doing with that
0: another interesting thing at play here is the demographics of who is using new campus and 80 percent of its learners and 60 percent of its instructors identify as women uh which is well, that's actually a bit like the equity listenership, but it's flipped.
1: Let's, let's move along to the next funding round. Mural raised a $50 million Series C. Alex, you've covered this company before it had anything related to ARR, it feels like. So walk yeah. us through this latest raise.
0: Okay, so let's go back in time to a company called Mural dot l y murally Mm -hmm. uh which is one of those startup names that i i didn't actually hate i kind of liked it ceo of this company is mariano suarez baton i've been talking to them for some time and they have gone from you know like small high growth kind of like you know inexpensively funded company to Mm -hmm. raising quite a lot of money to bring everyone kind of back up to the recent time back in august of 2020. Mural, because it dropped the .ly when it had more money it could buy a better domain name, <laughs> uh, raised $118 million at a valuation that PitchBook puts at like 540. And I got the company to say was ballpark correct. They were they mm-hmm. didn't know the, the exact number offhand, but like between $500 and 600 billion. million. And they just raised this week a $50 million Series C at a $2 billion valuation. So roughly a year, Forex valuation, new $50 million round. And critically, their ARR you know, tripled again in the last year. So two years in a row, at least, of tripling, which, Natasha, is exactly what investors want to see from high-growth tech companies. So this kind of fits into the theme of accelerating digital transformation.
1: 100%. I mean, I am always waiting for like the equilibrium to be met. I'm wondering if the CEO was like open with you about their stresses or at least anticipation for things to not slow down to how they were before, but calm down in a way.
0: The product, the simplest dumb way to put it, is a digital whiteboard. Right. Okay. I mean, it, it's it's a workspace where people can collaborate in a remote setting. And so it's not a huge surprise that Mural had a good pandemic because people around the world who were previously office focused were not. And so a lot of folks wanted to have space to collaborate in a digital way. The CEO of Mural is not worried about the end of the pandemic. And this okay. was interesting to me because I would be, I'd be terrified, but I'm, you know, a scared person by general nature. So What's his argument? Well, his point is that a lot of the companies that currently pay for his startup software have multiple offices. And so by definition, they have remote staff, comma, from each other, right? right. I mean, because if you have an office in London and an office in Boston, you cannot get together. You have to have a tool that works across different locations. And then mix in, you know, a more hybrid focused work environment and people just demanding to work remotely. And you can kind of see how the market has moved more towards Mural's favor and it doesn't really seem to be expecting to slow down its growth. A last note about this, because I don't want to go on too long about any particular round, is that uh, it raised less money in its Series C than its Series B.
1: Yeah. That was weird because it also forexes its valuation, to your point. And so that was right. like an interesting contrast. <laughs> right.
0: So what, So a company raises a huge round at a nice valuation, waits 12 months, and then raises a small amount of money at a much larger valuation. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that the investors who put money into it before really wanted to put more money into it. The company didn't need a whole bunch of capital, so they took on some funds at essentially no dilution. $50 million at a $2 billion valuation is, i doing math, uh, a very small percentage by definition. And so they didn't sell much of the company. They picked on some more capital, but they just didn't need that much. One of the investors that I talked to who took part in this round from the inside side said that they just had most of the Series B on their balance sheet. So kind of a sign of the times, inside round, super interesting company. And frankly, I'm very curious to see how they move along. As another tiny note, Austin-based Fetch Package also raised this week, and they had tripled their ARR in 2020. So we're seeing a lot of high-growth startups. But let's talk about Bolt.
1: Yeah, so Bolt, I actually covered them when I was at Crunchbase for the first time. Hey-oh. Then I think they raised about a $68 Series B. I definitely should have written down the exact number in my notes. So they are an online checkout startup. Their initial and biggest product is trying to make the checkout cart in online e-commerce shopping experiences a lot better. Because that's where a lot of people drop off and companies lose their sweet, sweet money. They've obviously since expanded. And the reason we're talking about them this week is that they were recently valued at $4 billion, per the information.
0: Bolt is raising a $333 million Series D to $4 billion valuation up 5X from its last valuation. So what's going on? Well, I went back to my notes and I did talk to the company at the end of last year, late December, early January, one of the two, and they had raised what they were calling a Series C1, Boo.
1: which was
0: stupid. <laughs> and I was like, look, all right, look, your valuation went up. It's not the same round, but you're calling it a C1 after your c And the CEO is like, "Okay, cool. Listen to me, though. We're going to raise a much bigger Series D. So this is a C1. And I was like, "Okay." And then they are apparently raising a much larger Series D. So that's follow through. Bolt does checkout, online fraud detection, all that kind of stuff. Competes with Checkout.com and Fast and a bunch of other companies. Essentially, everyone wants to make the world's best e-commerce sales solution. Given how much e-commerce has grown, there seems to be infinite market for this as there is for online payments. So expect multiple winners, uh, of which Bolt may be one. Now, we are going to scoop ahead to one last little funding round, spreadsheet.com, before we go. And Natasha, you wanted this in the show, and I'm curious why.
1: So I'm not a spreadsheet fluent person at all. It's something that I turn to all of my friends, many of them who are consultants and Jason <laughs> Rally, <laughs> to, to teach me on. And so when I see a company innovating on spreadsheets and the current spreadsheet situation, I'm like, please make it more user friendly. Airtable does not count. So there's this common perception where if you're looking to start a startup, look where a company still uses spreadsheets and start a company that way. This company is trying to do the opposite where its idea is the spreadsheet. Let's make it app focused and yeah. fun.
0: Yeah, so don't, don't take your spreadsheet and make it into an app. Put your apps in your spreadsheet. And I love things exactly. that are kind of like putting common wisdom on their head. Spreadsheet.com, CEO Matt Robinson, co-founder. I'm going to ruin this. Morali Mohan. Perfect. I'm pretty sure they're close. They raised $5.5 million last year. When I talked to them, they were kind of disclosing this round pretty far after the fact. So I'm curious when they're going to fundraise again, because that tends to be why people will kind of come out of the ether. But what matters in this case is the company is going to be making its product more generally available on October, oh gosh, 17th, because okay. it turns out that's spreadsheet day. That is so cute. I know. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I thought that was a very tweet. They have a, a relatively large wait list for their product. And okay. you know, this is a contrarian bet. And that to me yeah. is what makes it interesting. I would say modestly spreadsheet fluent, but I'm certainly no Excel ninja. But I would love to have a product that isn't Airtable because actually I don't like it. We are on Twitter Spaces, but there was news this week out from, uh, I don't know, a competitor to this fine product.
1: <laughs> Clubhouse has launched out of beta. Woo! That is exciting. It is actually exciting because I feel like I was really tired of using that clause in my stories. They are now open to everyone. Here's my beef okay, Clubhouse.
0: It obviously had some moments of magic early 100%. on. Jason Lemkin also pointed that out yesterday on Twitter, one of our favorite VCs and the original equity guest, actually. And, uh, you know, people was like, oh, it's on Club Us last night. And, you know, Will Smith popped in. And, and to be clear, that's amazing. Like We'd people love, that. love to have access to people they otherwise can't. And Natasha, you and I have been spoiled by the fact that we can email most people and get them to talk to us. But my beef is that they seem to have kind of chilled. And as Twitter has been on this, they've been busy. And Twitter Spaces is also where our communities are. Like Natasha, yeah. you and I have been on Twitter forever. We love Twitter. TechCrunch has a Twitter. Equity has a Twitter. And Twitter's life. Yeah, Twitter's life. And so to me, like it's great that Clubhouse is out of beta. I know they're doing well in India. Yeah. Uh, which is driving you know millions of downloads for them. And and great, it's a huge market. Talk about it all the time. But I, I wonder if it's just slightly too late. You know, compared to what Twitter has kind of put together.
1: I think they're probably learning a lot about who they thought their initial audience was going to be and who it actually ended up being. But I think they are going to have to learn how to be more than something that the tech elite and invite-only crowd love. Because opening up to everyone means a lot more than just getting new users. It means answering those questions of those users, serving those users, being better to those users. And we all know that they've struggled in the private beta with being good to their users and and answering some difficult questions. So I think Clubhouse is going to, to your point, Alex, have a lot of work ahead of it. But I think it's changed the world. It has. It just has changed the world. So Twitter Space is... I don't think Twitter spaces would have existed the same way. If the house didn't, is that too hot of a take?
0: Definitely not. But ladies and gentlemen, this has been equity for your podcasting app, but also uh, as a trial done through Twitter spaces. So hopefully this worked well and none of the audio got screwed up. We adore you. And we're back on Monday. Goodbye.
1: Goodbye.